Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on who you are, where you are, and what time zone it is in the wild blue yonder where you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider and you're interested in building a group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Welcome to episode number two, numero dos, as they say. I don't speak Spanish, but in any event, I'm really thrilled you're joining me today because this one is a topic that I have gotten questions about from day one, going back multiple years ago and up through the current day today. And I'm confident I'm gonna get it as we move forward. And it's all about the challenges in building group practices. I really think there are three of them that every emerging group practice owner and entrepreneur needs to be aware of. I wanna dig into all of them. I'm gonna tell you what they are. I'm gonna tell you what they mean, how to think about it and what to do to overcome them. So I hope you've got a pad and pen ready. Go brew another cup of that awful Keurig coffee and be prepared to take some notes and stay focused for about the next 20 to 30 minutes. I'm gonna bring it all to you right here. Let's roll. Thanks to everyone once again for joining me on episode two today. This is the episode that centers around the top three challenges for every entrepreneurial healthcare practice owner that we see them encounter at the early stages of their growth journey. These are the ones where you stub your toe, you step on a landmine, trial and error usually doesn't work. And I'm gonna try to give you some guidance today to at least be aware of these and understand how you can uh, circumvent some of them or at least be prepared for them. The top three challenges that we talk about most often and that I hear from countless clients are the following. One, the personal transition from the chair to CEO, meaning the personal transition from a clinical role to an administrative or a leadership role. The second one is obviously attracting and retaining associates. That's the number one problem in all group practices. And the third is hitting what we call the debt funding wall. Uh, When your banker no longer will lend to you to execute on your growth strategy. I'm going to unpack all three of those and give you ways to think about this, what to look for, and certainly what to do about it as we roll through today's episode. So these are in no particular order of importance, but they're all kind of grouped together because I think every initial founder of a group is going to encounter them at some point. So let's take what we call the founder's dilemma to start. And the founder's dilemma is that personal transition from clinical producer to a leadership role. Well, what happens and why does it happen? Usually the founder is the person that goes to the bank to personally guarantee the loan to buy or build his or her first practice. They they sign on the dotted line for the banknote, they acquire the practice, they are working in the practice, and they are the primary economic engine of that practice, meaning they are working in the business 
and they're working on the business. The business is really all about them. They are the straw that stirs the drink. And at some point, that founder says, you know, I'd like to start scaling back. I'd like to start cutting down my clinical load from four days a week to something less than that. And as I do that, I'd like to add more practices uh, to my overall uh, business. And this is a natural transition for someone to go through if they are of an entrepreneurial mindset. The challenge really lies in the fact that they are the primary economic engine of that first location, and it's probably a very successful location, or else they wouldn't want to add multiple locations thereafter. Nobody fails in their first location and says, hey, I got a great idea. Let me add locations number two, three, and four to it, right? So probably the first location is very successful. And if it is very successful, that means that the founder is also probably deriving a healthy amount of personal income out of it. None of us do what we do for free, and it's quite all right to have a relatively lavish lifestyle that rewards you for your time, your efforts, and your talents. The challenge becomes, how do you replace yourself from a clinical context and still maintain your personal standard of living? So let's use a little bit of math on this, and I'm gonna use some round numbers just to illustrate a point. And I'm going to try to keep them simple because I know they're sometimes difficult to follow uh, on a podcast when I'm rattling through them verbally. So let's say that initial practice is a million dollars in total revenue. And the million dollars is 20% hygiene and 80% clinical, meaning the founder is producing or collecting, in this case, about $800,000 worth of clinical collections. If the business runs about a 60% overhead rate out of a million dollars in revenue, that means there's about $400,000 left over after overhead is paid off. Not always, but generally speaking, that $400,000 is a rough approximation of an owner's income in a solo location. Okay, let's just use it as that for round numbers and big buckets to illustrate a point here. So if the founder of this business is making about $400,000 a year in personal income, and if he or she says, you know, I'd like to start scaling back my personal responsibilities, clinically speaking, and I think I'd like to add another location or maybe several more locations. And if I'm going to do that, it's going to require my leadership as the CEO of this business to start working on the business more than working in the business. That's the way the mindset goes. And and it's not wrong by any stretch. Okay. So if you start thinking back about this first location and you say, well, that founder is driving $800,000 worth of clinical collections. There's only so many hours in the day and in the week for them to work both in and on the business. They wanna add multiple locations and they want to start scaling themselves out of the chair. Well, what's going to happen? 
Well, I'll tell you, what's going to happen is they have to hire an associate to backfill behind them. Now, $800,000 worth of collections, if you hire an associate and plug them in to do all of that work, is gonna, the associate's going to come with them uh, a clinical compensation rate that you're going to have to pay them. You're going to have to pay them to do the work that you're no longer doing from a clinical perspective, at least. Market compensation is roughly, in a general dentistry practice, I mean, roughly about 30% of clinical collections. So if it's $800,000 worth of collections that the associate is now covering for you, and you're paying them 30% of their collections, you're paying them $240,000 to do the work that you no longer want to do or no longer are able to do. I said before that as the owner of that million-dollar revenue lo uh, single location, the initial location, you were deriving about $400,000 worth of personal income. Now you just hired an associate and paid them to do the work that you're no longer able to do because you're working on the rest of the business. And they ate up $240,000 worth of that $400,000 that you were initially taking home. That's a pretty significant income hit to you. So the question becomes, how do you transition yourself out of the chair and add more locations? And more importantly, what's the impact that you personally need to make on the business to offset the clinical compensation that that associate is now deriving from the work that you're no longer doing? It's a challenge and it's a very real challenge. And this is why a lot of founders say that when they went from one location to two locations, they took a personal income hit. You should be anticipating that. You should be aware of that and you should understand why that's happening. More importantly, you should understand the amount of growth that you need to generate in the entire business to offset that personal income hit as you transition out of the chair. What usually happens is a founder will scale themselves out of the chair and drop one day of clinical uh, focus per week, per quarter over the course of a year. Let me say that again real quick. If you're working four days a week clinically right now, and you need to devote more time to leadership and administrative services as you add locations number two, three, or four, however many, you may end up dropping one day of your clinical work per quarter and over the course of four quarters in a year, scale yourself out of the chair gradually till you are no longer working clinically at all. On the other hand, if it's a slower growth ramp, maybe you're only going to drop one clinical day every six months and phase yourself out over the course of two years. It's a gradual process. You're going to have to reinvest more in marketing. You're going to have to get that associate up to speed clinically and uh, increase their confidence and hand speed and certainly clinical capabilities. So it's a juggling act uh, in this early phase until you can work yourself out of the chair and have a business that is large enough 
that throws off enough um, essentially income uh, from a distribution context that allows you to maintain your lifestyle uh, when you are no longer working clinically. This is one of the first roadblocks that people hit. And the dilemma is really around personal income and standard of living, if you will, versus the amount of um, uh, distributions that a business throws off uh, as it's in overall growth mode. It's also important to understand uh, a question that we asked on a prior uh, podcast and one that you've heard us ask multiple times before, which is, what are you trying to build and why? And if it's a rapid growth business, not only is your personal income going to take a hit between locations one, two, and possibly three, but probably for a little while thereafter, as you're plowing more money back into the business to create more wealth opportunities upon exit versus if you're trying to build a lifestyle business that might be three or four locations and that's all, uh, and be able to support your personal standard of living through um, pulling income out of the business. So the income versus wealth dilemma is, is one that you need to keep in mind too. And that's all about how, how big and how fast that growth trajectory really is. The key to doing this though, is really to reverse engineer your income needs and then scale yourself out gradually. Uh, and if you can gain a handle on that, you can get better clarity on the impact that the, your associate needs to make as they're replacing you. And you can gain greater clarity around the impact that you need to make uh, in the profitability of the business to hopefully generate more profit and the distribution from that that offsets um, the, the clinical collections that you obviously gave up as you started scaling yourself out of the chair. You can get paid three ways in a business. You can get paid uh, from a compensation rate standpoint for work performed. And in this case, it's clinical compensation. You can get paid on a salary, which might be a daily rate as the CEO of the business. And you can get paid through distributions as the owner of the business. And a blend of all three of those is probably appropriate in the early stages of building and growing a group. This type of uh, scaling yourself out of the chair is something that we work with um, uh, with most of our clients. I mean, it's the vast majority of them. And, and we actually try to work through the math to understand what their standard of living is, the income that they've been making historically, the collections that they're going to be phasing themselves out of, and what the dollar impact is that they need to cover through business and operational performance, financial performance of the business to offset what they're leaving behind or paying an associate to do in their place. Um, it's not necessarily um, the easiest thing to calculate, but it is simply math. At the end of the day, you need to have a handle on it if you're going to phase yourself out of, out of the chair because something's got to give. A business is just not an open-ended ATM. And at some point, um, you're going to transition yourself and, and feel an, a personal income pinch from it. So the next challenge that I want to hit on is one that impacts every group. And it doesn't matter if you're two locations or, or you know, a thousand in two locations. And that's attracting and retaining associates. 
associate turnover is the number one problem uh, of every group practice. We've talked about this for years, and and I still hear it today. I got an email about this, um, oddly enough, last night um, from a, a colleague in the greater Charlotte area uh, specialist who's being challenged by this very, very dilemma. And I think it's one where we need to think about it holistically. There's not a one-size-fits-all answer to this, and and too many f- people fall back on, well, let me just pay a compensation rate at the top of market, and that'll solve my problem. And I'm here to tell you it won't. It might solve it temporarily, but it's usually not sustainable, and you're still going to have some degree of turnover, in, even if you're paying above market rate or at the top of market rate. So when we think about attracting and retaining associates, I really think about this in a couple of different phases. The first is, you know, the the recruiting um, uh, aspect. What are you, what is your recruiting pitch to a prospective associate? Whether they're coming out of dental school or residency or they're leaving another associateship to join your business, when you make a pitch for them to join your team, what is that pitch really all about? And it's not all about you. It's really about them. How do they see themselves joining your business? What's in it for them? You really need to, to, to pitch your business from their perspective. That's the way recruiting starts. If a, if a potential associate or prospective employee can't see themselves fitting into your business it really doesn't matter what they're uh, what you're going to pay them uh, or anything else they're going to move on from it so the first thing i would tell you is on the recruiting trail understand who it is that you're recruiting what their drivers and motivation is and see if you can address it from their perspective um, and it is a process by the way the second thing i, I want to talk about is the what I call onboarding phase. Okay, so when you hire someone, um, you know they show up on day one, and if your response is, "Hey, Dr. Smith, welcome to the team. Here's a handpiece and a lab coat. You're going to be working in operatories three and four today. Go get them." You know that's you know your your opportunity to really solidify that first impression. And if they feel like they're being hung out to dry, then they're probably not going to stay that long. And, and it really is problematic if you don't make a good first impression. And when I say a good first impression, that's not just on day one. That is the first handful of weeks, four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, whatever it may be. You need to have an onboarding process laid out where they understand their role in the business, they have hurdles to hit or objectives, and these aren't like quantifiable production. It's all, it's all about bonding with the team and working with mentors and, and everything along the way in those first couple of weeks of being a, a new employee. How do, how do they integrate themselves into your business? If you haven't thought through that, and if you haven't presented it to them from a stair-step approach or a yellow brick road, type of an aspect, then you're leaving a heck of a lot to chance. And we see a lot of turn too too much early or initial turnover 
with associates uh, that's kind of alarming in some respects. So I would say if you don't have an onboarding document, you need to think through that uh, and, and obviously position it from a standpoint of being presentable to someone who's, who's con- contemplating joining your team. As you move beyond onboarding, there is the third phase, which I kind of refer to as development or men- clinical development or mentorship. If you don't have a mentor, a senior dentist, um, be they chief clinical officer, chief dental officer, or, or just a, a tenured uh, member of your, uh, your team, a partner in your business, if you don't have mentors available for these young associates, um, it kind of leaves, again, leaves them sort of out to dry and, and has all but a, a self-guided feel for their career development. I don't think that's what you want. I think you want that young associate to have a mentor in the business, somebody that he or she can fall back on to help them in difficult clinical scenarios, certainly to to help them navigate the waters of the business. Um, You know, somebody who can uh, be, um, uh, you know, a trusted confidant to them and a professional in a way that that helps ensure their overall success in your business personally and professionally. So mentorship is key in today's world, and that's part of the development process. When I say development process, you know, when somebody joins your group, there are certainly ways that uh, you do things that you want them to adhere to. But beyond that, you, you want to develop their clinical skills at a more comprehensive and a faster rate than they could develop on their own. The pitch would be, hey, if you join our team, we're going to make you a better dentist. Yeah, you're going to get more at-bats with us because we can generate a higher level of patient volume. So you're going to get to perfect your craft just through the course of a normal day or week or month with us. Um, Without idle time in your schedule, you're going to get to treat a lot of patients. But beyond that, the clinical development process in our business over the next year, two years, three years, however long it may be, is that we're going to help you build the following skill sets over that period of time. And you're going to get to expand your clinical envelope um, from a clinical skill set standpoint. This is something that would reflect um, maybe a course curriculum that they're accustomed to if they're recently out of school. Uh, And I think it's a healthy thing when when some young associate can see their personal and professional development in your business, they tend to relate to it better and they tend to stick for longer. And I think that's what you're trying to achieve is minimizing turnover in the long haul. The last piece of this is one that we're going to talk about a lot going forward. And that's the the question of equity, becoming a partner, becoming an owner in the business and how you achieve that with them and for them. It is a, is it a buy-in that they have the opportunity for or an earn-in through some type of uh, earned equity award like profits interest or restricted stock or some type of partnership mechanism? And there are ways to, to do all of that. That'll be a, a subsequent episode on the podcast and something that I'll go to in depth. But suffice to say, we are very big believers in associate equity because it does help you attract a higher level of candidate 
There's a motivational aspect of it uh, when somebody has the opportunity to become an owner. And obviously, if they do become an owner, you stand a better chance of retaining them for the long haul. And that's really what you're after. Equity is, is an answer to all of that. And that brings me to the third challenge that we see uh, every group practice uh, founder encounter, and that is what we call hitting the debt funding wall. Um, we've written a lot about this in, in our past, uh, talked about it from the stage, uh, and we work with um, probably about 50% of our clients in this uh, endeavor. And the theory of it is that everybody that gets their start uh, buying or building their first practice or maybe their first two practices ends up hitting a debt funding wall where their lender of choice that they started with uh, basically says they're no longer willing to lend them more money. And if they want to continue their growth trajectory and add more locations, they end up having to, to walk away from their initial lender and find a lender um, that would either fund their overall growth strategy or at least fund locations three, four, five, or something along those lines. The reason for that is, is really pretty simple. It's really pretty understandable, and it's not taking a shot at any of our banking comrades out there. But most everybody, when they want to buy or build their first location, is looking for what we call a rate and term lender. That's low cost of funds, usually over a 10-year term, uh, and really all they're focused on is the interest rate. Uh, and that's a little bit of fool's goal, honestly, if, if you are intending to build a group. If all you want is just one practice, then it makes perfect sense. But if you want multiple locations over a relatively you know, fast growth uh, period, meaning a couple of years, um, a rate and term lender has a ceiling that, that you're not going to be able to break through. Um, and what I would caution you on is the conversation that you have and the way you evaluate lenders if you know you are going to build a group. So the first thing is, if you're going to build a group, you need to have that conversation up front with your lender and you need to have them be aware of your intentions, not just to own one location, but to own multiple locations and how quickly you anticipate achieving that. Is it maybe getting to a total of five locations over a 10 year period? Well, that's a relatively slow growth phase and probably something that a, a lender wouldn't have a problem with. On the other hand, if it's getting to five locations in two to three years, that's a lot faster ramp and something that a lender might look at differently. So when you go to borrow money and take out a loan, instead of focusing on the interest rate only, focus on the total cost of the loan. Now, what does that mean? Well, there are obviously closing costs and a lot of fees that are involved with obtaining a loan, and those add um, cost to the, the, the overall amount that you're borrowing. They're usually taking out, taken out of the proceeds of the loan. Um, and it impacts the rate. Um, uh, it, it impacts your cost of borrowing beyond just the rate um, uh, that, that it costs you on the total amount of principal. So the second thing would be compliant, what we call compliance costs. The bank is going to want to see 
some compiled financials from an accountant to validate how the business is performing um, and do they have any risk exposure with you as the borrower. So you want to find out, um, is that a CPA compiled report or is it a CPA reviewed or a CPA audited statement? Now, there is a significant difference in the cost to you from an accounting firm if that firm is going to be providing compiled or reviewed or audited statements. Those all, all three of those take an accounting firm a lot more time and thus it costs you a lot more to, to furnish those to the bank depending on what they are. So you wanna understand the cost of compliance. The same can be said uh, is that if, if the bank is requiring those statements on an annual basis, or are they requiring them on a quarterly basis? So if it's something where they, the bank requires CPA compiled financials on an annual basis, that's a relatively low cost to you of compliance. On the other hand, if they wanted audited statements on a quarterly basis, that's a heck of a lot more money out of your pocket to comply with the, those provisions of the loan. So you wanna understand the compliance costs and, and the costs that you're gonna incur going forward uh, to substantiate your credibility uh, as the borrower. Um, you also wanna understand prepayment penalty structures. A bank incurs costs to fund your loan. And it's the bank's right to recoup those costs over the, the course um, of the term of the loan. Most loans have all the interest front loaded in the first couple of years, which allows the bank um, to cover the cost of processing the loans and everything. And if you do not carry the loan to term, meaning you don't pay it out over 10 years, you pay it out over, let's you, know, you pay it off over two years, let's say, there are typically prepayment penalty, uh, prepayment penalty structures in place. And the reason for those prepayment penalties is to allow the bank to recoup the cost to process your loan. It's a legitimate cost, but you need to be aware of what that breakup fee is if you decide to leave that lender for another lender that may be willing to fund your overall growth strategy. So what is the prepayment penalty and what is the structure? Um, is it is the prepayment penalty only in place for the first year or two of the loan, or is it over the first five years of the loan? And what is the percentage each year? Is it something like a five, four, three, two, one, meaning it's five percent in year one, four percent in year two, three percent in year three, et cetera? Or is it just in the first two years of the loan at something like five percent and five percent and then nothing thereafter? So it's important to understand what the prepayment penalty structure is. We're big advocates for minimizing prepayment penalties in terms of both percentage and the years that you're exposed in the first uh, handful of years in the term of the loan. So our, our opinion would be to try to negotiate away prepayment penalties um, altogether if you can. If you do, it'll probably mean a, a higher rate over the course of the, the loan term. Uh, and that's understandable, and that's quite all right, in our opinion. Um, 
Then the last piece is, if there is a prepayment penalty, is it based on the remaining principal or the original amount of the loan? And those can be two significantly different costs involved to you if you decide to leave that bank. So getting clarity around not just the prepayment penalty structure and what years uh, it's in place, but also getting clarity around is it is the penalty based on the remaining principal of the loan or is it the original amount of the loan? And then the last thing would be be very aware of any subordinated debt covenants um, in the structure of that loan because all too often um, there are subordinated debt restrictions um, that basically says you're not allowed to take on any subordinated debt without approval of the um, of the senior lender, the, the lender in first position. And if you do, you're in violation of one of the covenants. Um, that is something that we're starting to see crop up in uh, a lot of situations that the, uh, um, the borrower didn't know about. They didn't know they were in violation um, of that covenant when they went to a a subordinated lender for um, borrowing money on location number four, number five, something like that. And it can really get you into a lot of hot water in a hurry. So be aware of that. Um, if there is a subordinated debt in terms of a covenant um, that's in the structure of the loan and what it means to you. These three things, the founder's dilemma and that personal transition out of the chair to, to leadership role of the business, the attracting and retaining of associates, and the hitting of the debt funding wall are, are probably all things that you're going to encounter as you transition from one location to your first handful of locations. And you need to be out ahead of all of them because if you can be proactive in terms of how you deal with them and address them, you can uh, stand a better chance of overcoming them without compromising anything or, or, or getting caught uh, unawares on some of them. And if you need guidance on any one of them or all three of them, obviously we hope that you'll reach out to us um, here at Polaris and we can give you guidance on, on all of it. I hope that you do find this type of information really educational and informative. And, and obviously we hope that you can uh, find a way and a means to apply it in your business. If you've got questions on any of the subject matter that I, I danced around today, please send them to me directly. I'd be happy to try to respond to them via email or potentially answer them in an upcoming episode of the podcast. You can email me directly at perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Stick around. We'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. So thanks once again for joining me on the podcast today. I hope you found it to be educational and to a degree enlightening. Um, and before we wrap things up, I, I wanted to take a minute and answer a question we've gotten from, well, it seems like everybody <laughs> in the audience. Um, and that is, what is Polaris? And can you give us a little bit more guidance on on the company, what you do, what the plans are and everything like that? And And I would say that DeWalker and I are really excited um, about the business uh, and the opportunities that we we know are ahead of us. So there's some things I can answer and some things I want to hold back uh, until they become a reality um, and tell you about them at that at that stage. But 
the nutshell version of this is that we really feel like uh, our core service offering, which as it stands right now, we focus in the group dental practice space uh, and we provide educational resources, strategic consulting resources, debt recapitalization resources, and associate equity and executive equity uh, models for partnership opportunities. Those are the core things we do right here, right now, today. We didn't leave the prior company to launch a new business just to replicate what we had. We know that there are other service offerings that complement those four that I just mentioned that we're going to add in the coming months uh, and, and over about the next year's worth of time. And we've kind of scoped out some of those and are in conversations about um, adding uh, additional services that would complement that, that core service offering and really allow us to bring more value to the group dental practice owner at, at this phase. And I think there are going to be some really neat things to come uh, that you'll hear about, see, and, and we'll talk about on upcoming podcast episodes, but it'll be a complement to the things that we've built so far. We think we have a really firm foundation uh, and we can, we can build and scale off of it every bit as much as we advocate for our clients to build and scale. The other thing that I'll say is that we obviously decided to call the business Polaris Healthcare Partners, not Polaris Dental Partners. And the reason for that is we, we really feel like the, the foundation that we've laid and what we do really, really well um, that we've done historically exclusively for dentists, group dental practice owners, we think all of that has some applicability outside of the dental field. So I think in the coming years, um, you'll see us start to expand into subsequent healthcare verticals that are still that same physician practice model, um, group practice dynamic. Uh, that we know and love and, and are really near and dear with here in dental, but we think we can do it in, in other healthcare verticals. So that's a pretty cool opportunity that's uh, hopefully not too far off in the future, but something that we'd like to see um, bring it into a, a reality. So I, I think the opportunity for the business is one that every bit as much as we advocate um, to our clients in the marketplace on the, the best way to build group practices, we're going to use that that same kind of a mindset to build our business. And it'll hopefully be a pretty neat growth trajectory. As you build your business, we'll be building our business and you'll see a lot of the same things come to fruition. And we, and obviously I hope that we're every bit as successful as, uh, as our clients have been. With that, I wanna transition to a last point on a personal level and share something with you um, that I think is just kind of cool. Um, many of you in the audience are, are avid readers. Um, I've shared reading lists with a number of you before. Whenever I have conversations with people, inevitably it it diverges into um, you know a, a topic around, hey, what what have you read recently, or what are you reading now, and can you share any good book ideas and things? And and we'll end up with some book reports down the road uh, on the podcast. But I stumbled across something not too long ago that I really enjoyed. Um, many of you know the author Ryan Holiday. He's written a number of uh, books, The Obstacle is the Way, Conspiracy, Perennial Seller, 
Um, ego is the enemy. Um, and this most recent one is called stillness is the key. He, he writes a lot about stoicism uh, from a philosophy standpoint, too. And I find him to be very um, compelling and really, really interesting. And I, I've just I've also admired the way he's built his business, to be honest with you, as an author and as a thought leader. Uh, and I follow a lot of what he does um, and, and I tend to participate in some of it. One thing that he rolled out, and this thing might have been even a couple of years old, he rolled out something called the Read to Lead Challenge. Read to Lead Challenge. Um, And you can probably Google Read to Lead Challenge, and it'll take you to the the website. Um, The website is dailystoic.com. But the Read to Lead Challenge was this neat kind of a a 14 day, I think, or maybe it was a 10 day course where each day you got a different email with a different reading list or objective and a quick two to three minute video from, from Ryan talking about what it is. And for those of us who are avid readers and and we really like books and, and, you know, like the process of learning, this was a cool kind of uh, a course, a digital course to take, and I think it was like 99 bucks or something like that. Um, I really found it to be a lot of fun. It changed the way I thought about reading. It changed the way um, I approach it, and it changed the way I've been um, thinking about learning as of late. And I really, uh, I think it opened my mindset to a lot more. So I share that with you because it had an impact on me, and I really uh, enjoyed it. And for those in the audience who are avid readers, you might get something out of it too. So take a look. Feel free to hit me back and tell me what you think on it. And hopefully you'll uh, you'll get you know something out of it much the way that I did. Well, today's episode was a lot of fun. At least it was for me. I hope you found it to be enlightening and, and that you got a lot out of it. Obviously, we try to go deep in terms of uh, the granular nature of our content and And my hope is that um, you're getting a lot of uh, value add out of these podcasts. If you did, please do leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts out there. It helps us, um, you know, in terms of show rankings and all that kind of good stuff. And we certainly appreciate any comments you're willing to share. If you've got questions or you want to submit something to us, um, again, happy to uh, address them on the air. Uh, or at least follow up with you directly uh, via email, you can send them to me directly. And my email address is perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Perrin is P-E-R-R-I-N at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Hopefully I can read them and answer them in an upcoming episode. You can obviously find out more about us on our website, which is polarishealthcarepartners.com. We really appreciate you being a listener and a subscriber, and we look forward to seeing you on an upcoming episode. Take care. Thanks a lot.